Hey everybody, welcome to episode 152 of the Running Rogue Podcast. This is Chris coming at you from Austin, Texas. Excited to be with you on a Monday, recapping a whole bunch of current events from this past week and weekend that we'll talk about. And then in addition, I'm going to be getting to some questions from listeners that came on the backs of my last episode, 151, where I talked a little bit about marathon race planning for Chicago and Toronto. Got some questions on that about marathon racing, both both preparation as well as during and post-marathon. And so we're going to get to all of those questions at the end, including one of my favorites, which is, should I go with the pacer? <laughs> always, always get that question in spite of how many times I talk about it. I'm going to cover it again. But before we get there, we've got, as I mentioned, a, a bunch of current events to get to between the Chicago Marathon and Kipchoge's adventures to break two hours, as well as the news about the Oregon Project shutting down. There's a lot to react to on the current events side. So we'll get to that. But first, wanted to, before I jump into those events, wanted to point you to another Clean Sport Collective podcast that I would highly recommend you listen to. And that's the episode number 15 that we just put out. It's an episode where Kara Goucher and I interviewed marathon legend Frank Shorter, talking about his experiences of winning a gold in the marathon in 72 and then being robbed of a gold medal by what would be determined was a drug cheat in the 76 Olympics. And then Frank went on to be a part of the formation of the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, and he tells a fascinating story about how that all came to be, including personalities that you wouldn't expect, including President Bill Clinton, General McCaffrey, who was a general who was in operation in Operation Desert Storm when the U.S. first attacked Iraq when they had they had occupied Kuwait. And so General McCaffrey went on to become a cabinet member and eventually with Frank Shorter got involved in the creation of the USADA and just a fascinating story that involved really a lot of people being in the right place at the right time. Otherwise, we might not have a U.S. anti-doping agency. So would highly encourage you listen to that because not only do you need to know about Frank Shorter if you don't because he is a U.S. marathon legend, but also because he is one of the fathers of current drug testing through his work in forming the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency. So go check that out, episode 15. It's just part one of of an interview with Frank, and we'll be getting to part two actually coming up in several weeks. But definitely recommend that one. And if you haven't already, listen to episode 14 with Kara and Adam Goucher, where they talk about their reactions to the Alberto Salazar four-year doping or four-year ban for doping violations, then please do check it out. That's that's an interview that I would say I'm really, really proud of because of the work we did and just elevating Adam and Kara to tell their six-year story, their six-year journey to help get justice in that Salazar case. So go check those out if you haven't already, and then we've got more coming including a really fascinating interview coming up this week with former cyclist and Lance Armstrong teammate turned whistleblower Tyler Hamilton. 
That one's coming out this coming Sunday, episode 16. So we're continuing to put out cool content over there. So check it out and subscribe if you haven't already. But let's get to current events. So much to talk about. We'll do these in order of how they happened. Getting reactions on all of it. So first things first, on Thursday night, we became aware that Mark Parker, the CEO of Nike, had decided to shutter the Nike Oregon project, sending an email to employees, notifying them that email was leaked to Runner's World. And then later on Thursday night, we all got the news publicly that Nike has decided to shut down the Oregon project. This is definitely huge news and a step in the right direction on this journey for Nike, although Nike in the email also stated that it would continue to support the appeal for Alberto Salazar. So I would consider this a partial victory and there's still more to watch for in terms of how this is going to play out and if Nike really is doing the right thing or if they're just trying to whitewash this story and they're going to take away the Oregon Project brand and then basically revive the same team under another name, try to drop the Salazar news baggage and move on, which could be what this is. It could just simply be a, a PR move to try to sweep everything under the rug. But either way, it's a step in the right direction. And I think another victory in this David versus Goliath battle that Kara and Adam have been a part of in going to bat against what was happening within the Oregon Project in terms of activities that were cheating or borderline cheating. And so it's good news to see this happening and also has a lot of implications, obviously, in terms of the athletes that are on that team. You have really kind of two camps within the Oregon Project. You had the team or the part of the team that was supervised primarily by Alberto Salazar. And then you had the part of the team that was supervised primarily by P. Julian. Clearly both worked together, but oftentimes when the athletes talk about it, they would talk about, hey, Pete's my coach or Alberto's my coach. And so it's clear that there is some distinction in terms of who's doing what work within the Oregon Project. Obviously on the Alberto side, you have Sivan Hassan, you have Kachelka, you have Klosterhalfen, you have Jordan Hesse and Galen Rupp, at least those five athletes that were operating in the Salazar camp, and then a host of middle distance athletes, including Clayton Murphy, Craig Ingalls, Donovan Brazier, Shannon Robry, and others that worked with Pete Julian. And so I could definitely see this playing out probably in different ways depending on which side of the camp you might be on within the Oregon Project. I could see Pete Julian's team essentially becoming its own team, probably with a new name and a rebranded name. And then what will happen to those Salazar athletes, I would highly doubt that they would end up in the Pete Julian camp because he isn't really known for coaching athletes that race longer than 5,000 meters like Salazar, who was the the sort of 10K to marathon specialist. So I could see those athletes, Hassan, Klosterhalfen, Kachelka, 
Hesse Rupp potentially end uh, ending up in a completely different places and maybe different places depending on the individual versus I think the group that's currently mostly training with P. Julian will probably end up sticking together and again just being rebranded under a different team name with P. Julian as that head coach. So we shall see, but it'll be interesting to see, especially in light of some of the results from Chicago this past weekend where both Rupp and Hesse ended up dropping out due to injury and that leaves them in real you know with real questions and we're not that far out from the their big races which would be the Olympic trials coming up on February 29th either way though this is a victory for sure for clean sport and hopefully a sign that Nike will begin taking the right steps to do what they can to at least promote clean sport within the teams that they support. I would still like to see them not support the Salazar appeal and separate themselves from Salazar. I think that would be the right move given that he has been convicted of these doping violations. We probably won't see that, but if we did, then I think it would be a further step in the right direction. But we will see. And I don't think the pressure is off Nike yet as this whole thing plays out. But speaking of Nike, we can't talk about Nike without talking about, of course, the the Indias 159 challenge that Kipchoge was a part of on Saturday morning in Vienna overnight here. I think it started at 1.15 hour time, and at the time I was fast asleep because I had to get up for an early long run on Saturday morning. Got to see the results when I woke up and then have watched the highlights. I've not watched the full thing, but I've seen sections of it to this point. And obviously, if you're a fan of this podcast, I would assume you would have checked to see that Kipchoge did get it done in a time of 159.40 this time finishing comfortably under that two-hour barrier by 20 seconds, whereas last time he missed it by 25 seconds. This time I think the weather was a little better. He had better shoes. Some of you may have seen the the pictures from the patents of the shoes going around on, on Twitter where they've now upgraded from the 4% to what is purported to be a 6% improvement in that energy return from the ground via these shoes that now have not just the 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 whiz bang foam, but of course the carbon plates as well as now these airbags underneath the shoe the shoes within the midsole that basically help return energy and prevent compression of the foam so that these shoes are now truly operating like trampolines on your feet. So this time he had not just the four percent but the 6% shoes, which would theoretically be even better. And this time the weather was even more perfect. I think last time in Monza, the temperatures were into the upper 50s versus in Vienna, they started in the upper 40s and ended up pretty much having perfect conditions throughout. And of course, the pacers and the the laser line, pacer line was all there. So everything played out perfectly and he got it done in what seemed like comfortable fashion, there was a little bit of a, 
a point in the middle of the race where he seemed to be uncomfortable for whatever reason, but that faded fairly quickly. And then he finished looking like he could have kept going and sprinted up to his coach and then his wife and then ended up running up and down the finishing straight there looking like he was ready to to just run another race. It was quite, quite unbelievable. And of course, Kipchoge, Kipchoge got it done. Everybody's been asking me my reactions and, and I get that a lot of people are excited about this and yes, you could say it's a big barrier broken and I know that the quote, Kipchoge's quote, no human is limited has been making its round in the discussions about this race. And while I think it is amazing and while I, while I am a fan of Kipchoge's and I think he's an amazing human and I appreciate the spirit that he brings, not only in terms of his consistency of approach, but also clearly how he recognizes that it's not just a physical pursuit. It's also a mental pursuit and his Yoda like quotes about the mental side of the sport are really, really inspiring I also appreciate the fact that he shows consistently that he doesn't believe this is just about him, that it is about the collective pursuing this barrier together. And, and, you know, he's quick to thank and give shout outs to everybody involved. And that's really inspiring and cool. But I do struggle a little bit with the the no human is limited storyline because in a lot of ways I don't feel like this was a human victory. I feel like, well, at least not in terms of athletically, it wasn't necessarily a human victory. I feel like this was a victory for science as much as it was for athletic achievement. And I think what you had was the same Kipchoge getting, and the same amazing Kipchoge getting the benefit of the footwear as well as, of course, the drafting and the pacing that was involved to get him over this barrier. I don't think he could have done it without those elements. And so to say no human is limited is a little bit short, short comes short in my opinion, because really this is really to me about the fact that science can create opportunity and create breakthroughs that humans on their own could not achieve. And to me, that's really the story here. And, you know, the the shoes, it seems, are worth anywhere from 90 seconds to potentially as much as three minutes for Kipchoge. And we're not really sure exactly where it falls in that range. And then the drafting itself is worth somewhere between 90 seconds and two minutes. And between those things, if you add that time back, then you have a time in the 203 to 204 range that Kipchoge has has run before and and run quote unquote comfortably before in uh in a race at Berlin or London and so in my mind this is really the same Kipchoge the same amazing Kipchoge now being propelled beyond this barrier by science and by the the footwear and by obviously the drafting and the 41 pacers that were out there helping him which is all very amazing, but to me it takes away some of the cool factor to it because it seemed like really it was was about those 
those t- those tricks, those scientific tricks, more than it was about simply Kipchoge himself breaking this barrier. And that can be cool and exciting for some. It's a little bit less cool and exciting for me, especially when you look at the diagrams of the shoes that he was wearing this time. Again, not the 4% version. This is now the 6% version that have airbags in the midsoles as well as multiple carbon fiber plates as well as, of course, this high-energy return foam that is propelling him forward. And if you and if you watched him after the, the race where he was sprinting back across the finish to cheer with the crowd and then jumping up and down, it just seemed like he had the freshest of legs, which to me is significantly affected by this footwear. And it does beg the question for me because you also saw Bridget Koski running in the same shoes when she broke the world record on Sunday in Chicago. It does beg the question, will the IAAF regulate this footwear? Because now you do have, I believe, a proven and distinct performance advantage if you're wearing these Nike shoes. So what do we do about that? Especially because these shoes as far as I can tell, are prototypes that were being used for this 159 challenge and that aren't, at this point, readily available for anybody to wear. So is that fair? Does that create a level playing field on the start line for all of those companies or those athletes running for other companies? And the answer is no, it's not a level playing field. And and now we're at a point where we're not too far away from the U.S. Olympic trials, and it's possible that those non-Nike athletes that are standing on the starting line could be seeding a 90-second to 3-minute advantage to their counterparts wearing these prototype Nike shoes at the start, before the race even starts. And I would bet that that's enough to make a difference in who makes an Olympic team or not. And... That's that's kind of a problem. It definitely, to me, affects the integrity of the results that you're seeing. And I don't understand why more people aren't calling for regulation of this footwear, especially from competing brands. And I would think that if another company, say Brooks or Saucony or Hoka, had come out with these these shoes and we're putting them in prototype form on athletes in the starting line and it was creating an advantage that we're seeing, I guarantee you the IAAF would get involved in regulating the footwear right away because Nike would be lobbying for it. As such, the biggest brand in sport is is at an advantage here with this footwear that they created. And of course, they're going to be pushing for, for no regulation because it it gives their athletes an advantage. So that's the part of this equation that to me just becomes a problem. And at this point, I don't know what we're seeing. Are we seeing performance driven by footwear? Are we seeing a performance driven by human achievement? And the answer is we don't know. But my hypothesis is that's driven by footwear, just like the the full body swimsuits did several Olympics ago for swimmers, and those have now been banned. That's what we're seeing. We're seeing technology improvement and not necessarily human improvement, which kind of takes away some of the luster of these results in my mind. 
So I hate to be a little bit of a buzzkill, but yes, Kipchoge's amazing. But I'm less excited about this 159 result because I don't think it was ultimately driven by Kipchoge. So that's that. Now let's talk about the the race results that just kept coming this weekend in Chicago. Obviously, we've got to talk about the new women's world record that was set by Bridget Kosky. As as JoJo and I predicted, she won the race, but I did not predict that she would run a 2.14 low and absolutely smash the Paula Radcliffe world record by over a minute. Again, wearing these prototype pink I don't think they call them 6% shoes, but they talk about a 6% advantage on on the imagery you see online. She did it going away, winning by north of six minutes in this race, just absolutely dominating the race and running pretty even splits after a really fast start where she went out in 2.10 pace initially and then settled into a more consistent rhythm and then ultimately ended up running pretty close to even splits to get that 2.14 result absolutely going away and she would beat the top american and bates who ran 225 by all well north of 10 minutes and would beat her by more than two miles on the road which is just un- unbelievable and again a lot of people are excited about this this result and I would like to be excited about it, but it's hard to be excited about it when you find out that Koski's agent is Federico Rosa, who is the Italian agent who has had three EPO drug cheats in his camp recently, including Rita Jeptu and including Jemima Sumgong, both female marathoners. And then, of course, Asbel Kiprop, the 1,500-meter runner, was also from Rosa's camp and was busted with EPO as well. So I just, I hate to be a buzzkill again, but I just can't get excited about this one. I don't know why, frankly, that Chicago would allow an athlete in the race that comes from Federico Rosa. He is an agent who has been consistently linked to EPO drug cheats. We don't know whether Koski is an EPO drug cheat or not, but it stands to reason that there at least should be suspicion because of her association with an agent who has been linked to such athletes. And I don't understand, especially as a group of majors that purports to care even more about rooting out the drug cheats than the IAAF, why you would let athletes from that agent in your race. So, no, I can't get excited about it. I I find it truly unbelievable that she was able to run this time. I think the shoes were a big factor, but I also think it's, it's potentially or it's possible that she could also be doing other things nefariously or the wrong way and using EPO perhaps because of her association with an agent who is known for those connections. And people will say, but Chris doesn't mean she's doing it. And here's what I would say to that. If you're Federica Rosa and you're an agent who is trying to put his best athletes forward is so that he as an agent can optimize the money he makes by putting people at the front of these high dollar races like Chicago 
Cosby also won London. It stands to reason that you're going to put your best athletes forward that are doing everything on your program in order to perform well. And he's done it before with other top female marathoners. He is a gatekeeper. He is a gatekeeper. These athletes from Kenya are not able themselves to connect to a Chicago or to a London. They're just not. Now, maybe they should be, but they but they can't. They are connected to these races through these gatekeepers as in these agents. And if you're the gatekeeper, you're going to ensure that those athletes with the best opportunity to, to win, to run fast, are going to get through the gate. And it is my belief, as Rosa has proved in the past, that you're going to put forward the athletes that are, that are completely on the program. And in the past for him, we've seen that that program involves EPO. So why is it that we would assume that Koski didn't have something similar going on? Now, again, we don't know, but it's possible. And here you have an athlete who may not be getting tested when she's training in Kenya as frequently as she should. She's certainly getting tested at London and Chicago, but that's well outside of training where she can ensure that the doses of EPO are out of the system. And and so anyway, it's it's just I want I want to be excited, but I can't. And then you look at the result, a 214. I mean, that's faster than most US men can run. That's faster than the men's Olympic A standard for the US. It's just Again, it's too unbelievable. And to smash the world record by more than a minute, a world record that had stood for more than a decade and a half, from an athlete in Paula Radcliffe who has her own questions around her, it's just it's just too much to believe. And, and yet here I am talking about this and feeling guilty about being a quote-unquote buzzkill, and that's really frustrating to me because... In my mind, everybody should be asking these questions, including the highest the highest authorities in the sport. Media, everybody should be asking these questions. And it doesn't mean that she's dirty. I mean, I think they should be asking these questions so that we could prove that she's clean, so that we can actually believe in something in the sport. But no, they would not want you to ask those questions. They just want us as fans to live in this bubble. This bubble of, oh, we're just going to celebrate this, and anybody who's not celebrating it should should be shunned because they're just they're just a buzzkill, and that's incredibly frustrating to me because it also prevents athletes that are in the sport from raising questions because they're just going to get shunned and pushed away and silenced because they're asking very reasonable questions, and it's. It's frankly ridiculous. I mean, the, the highest levels of sport should be questioning this result. And yet, they're not. And you've got Barack Obama tweeting out, you know, congratulating Kipchoge and Kosky on these results because it shows that, you know, the the human's ability to endure and break barriers. And, 
you know, with all due respect, Mr. Obama, you don't know what you're talking about. President Obama, you don't know what you're talking about. I wish we could believe the way you say, but I know too much and therefore I'm jaded. But I think I'm jaded because I should be, because it is highly likely that these are questionable results. It is highly likely that it's about the shoes and not about the athlete. And yet the marketing powers that be and the other powers that be would would want us just to smile and move on and not ask questions and and instead take attention away from perhaps the real results that we should be excited about this weekend, which might include a really close men's race. Not that, you know, that was necessarily clean either. A really close men's race separating by only a second between first and second. Lawrence Toronto getting the win for another major victory after winning in Boston. He won a tight one in Chicago as well. Or, more importantly, from the American women who all of whom did really well setting PRs and Emma Bates who ran a 225 to secure a three-minute PR, Stephanie Bruce who ran a 227 to secure a two-minute PR, and then a whole host of American men who all PR'd in the 210 and 211 range, including Jacob Riley who is a great has a great comeback story as the top American in the field. All of those things get overshadowed and in some ways we're taught to look down upon them because they were so far behind this result from Kosgi and really though those might be the results that we should truly be celebrating because they might be the ones that are truly real and yet again shame on me for being a quote-unquote buzzkill so I'm frustrated I'm frustrated I think you should be frustrated And while, yes, I believe you should watch the sport and be excited when cool things happen, I think you should also be equally skeptical when these performances happen so that we can really get to the bottom of what is real and what is not in our sport. And I just wish the powers that be would help us do that rather than just trying to whitewash everything and get us all singing kumbaya and while we're while we're staring at these unicorns that may or may not be real okay i'll jump off that soapbox but let's talk about the the were to me the cool results emma bates 225 huge pr for her really really well executed pretty close to even splits for her i think that puts her in the conversation as a threat to make a podium in the trials next February. Stephanie Bruce still cranking out PRs as her second PR in less than a year after PRing at CIM in December. And, you know, and yet she's, she's just a journeywoman in this sport. Highly, highly inspiring mother, work hard, just blue collar athlete who's just, getting the work done and continuing to improve there at at the, with the NAZ Elite team. Such a cool story there. Lindsay Flanagan also ran a PR. We had five U.S. women in the top 10, and there's so much to be excited about there. But yet these women have been overshadowed by this quote-unquote amazing result from Koski. So... Look at those look at those American women in the list. Be excited about them. 
they should be celebrated and it's going to mean that the trials in February, men's and women, are going to be really, really exciting, really, really tough to make that team, especially because now we don't know what we're going to get potentially from Jordan Assay and Galen Rupp, who both dropped out of this race. Jordan Assay dropped out just past, I believe, the 5K mark. She had apparently come up with a hamstring injury within the first couple of miles, tried to stop, stretch it out, slow down, never worked itself out, and ended up dropping out shortly thereafter. Rupp ended up making it past 23 miles, but dropped out with what his camp is calling a calf strain, so he wasn't able to get it done either. And so those two cells are athletes, DNFs, and now huge question marks next to their name as they try to now find a new coach as well as then get ready for the trials in February. Lots of uncertainty in that world and we don't know what we're going to get from those two, which means that it opens everything up for Sarah Hall, Emma Bates, Emily Sisson, Molly Huddle, Steph Bruce, of course, and Kellen Taylor and many others, which make it exciting. And then on the men's side, we've got Jordan, Jared Ward and Scott Fobel, I believe, are your other favorites along with Rupp if you can get healthy. But then you've got this whole host of other athletes that just finished in the 210 to 11 range in this race. Jacob Riley, Andrew Bumbelow, Scott Smith, Parker Stenson, who all scored Noah Drotti, who all scored PRs in that low 210 range, who could now potentially have another spot available to them if Rupp can't get healthy in time or can't get on form in time. So lots to lots to watch for, lots of fascinating stories to see how they might play out over the next, what do we got? Four months, really. Just four and a half months, almost five months, but four and a half months until the trials. So follow all of that. Of course, I'll be keeping tabs on everybody as well, and then I'll be going to the trials to watch and and cheer on myself. And if you haven't already planned the trip, you should. February 29th weekend in Atlanta. So that's all Chicago. And we didn't even talk about Mo Farah, by the way, who ended up outside the the top five not having the race that he wanted after getting really really angry and short at the press conference blaming the media for the questions they're asking all reasonable questions about his affiliations with salazar and he was blaming them did not seem to appreciate the heat at all and that may have affected his his race so no podium for fair this time i do want to give a shout out to some rogue athletes who competed at Chicago. We had lots of amazing results, and I can't name them all here. I wish I could, but I wanted to give a shout-out to one of the athletes I coach here in Austin, Keith Gailey, ran his first Boston qualifier with a 31-minute PR to finish in 3.07, and also Nicole Ledesma, who runs in my 
group here as well. She ended up with a 51-minute PR, running 330. Then we had one of our coaches as well, Emily Kozell, run a 336 for a solid PR for Emily. And then we shouted out on our Instagram today, David Kidd from the Gen and Tonics group, our North Satellite. He's 64 years young, ran a Boston qualifying 344 to get his BQ with 20 minutes to spare. So he'll be able to register for that Boston Marathon next September with that first group, that BQ minus 20 group. So really, really cool results. And and we're proud of all of our athletes who raced, which, which was a big, big group there in Chicago. One of the things I wanted to call out about particularly Keith and Nicole's races is that both of them have overcome some adversity in the last year to get these results. Nicole ran her last marathon in 2017 and since then has had some ups and downs, some struggles with injuries, some things she's had to work through, but has just consistently kept working. Same thing with Keith. Last year didn't have the results he wanted at the Marine Corps Marathon because of some injury issues. But both of them just kept working, kept doing the work, stayed patient, didn't get greedy, didn't try to do anything crazy, but just kept doing the fundamental work that you need to do to keep getting better. And of course, you know, that doesn't mean it was perfect between then and now for both of them, but but they just kept plugging along and like so many of the athletes that I coach that work will eventually pay off if you're just consistent about it and and patient with it and that's always inspiring to me as an athlete because it's those it's those moments when people bounce back bounce back from results that may not have been what they wanted and then keep doing the work and keep doing the work and then get that result that they wanted the next time it's makes it that much sweeter I think not only as an athlete and as a coach and just shows you how it works in this marathon game of ours that you don't you don't always get what you want and every time out and the race you know you hope that the race is that perfect evidence of all the hard work that you put in but it isn't always and I think sometimes when we don't get that race result, we often assume that the training results weren't good either. And most, mostly those two things can be un, unlinked. You know, I always say there's training results and then there's racing results. And those two things ideally will sing a happy song together, but sometimes they don't. And if they don't, then you have to then lean on the training results and remember that all of that work that you did to get ready for your race is still with you. And still then puts you in a higher place when you're building forward to that next milestone. And Keith and Nicole and others kept that in mind. Just kept working in spite of the setbacks along the way. And if you do that, it will pay off. Including for one of the athletes that some of you may know. A listener, Mary Margaret Morrison, who actually had on for episode 83 where we talked about her sub four goal at the time and her goal was just simply to break four hours and 
I, I made a guarantee that she would if she followed our advice and training. And ultimately, she didn't break four in that cycle that we had discussed over that podcast 83 because of stomach issues that she had in the latter parts of the race where she couldn't keep things down. But Mary Margaret, she kept working. She actually joined our podcast virtual group. And then at the Prairie Fire Marathon in Wichita, Kansas this past weekend, she came back and got it done getting her first sub four with a 350 flat time to earn that sub four going away with 10 minutes to spare. So I want to give a shout out to Mary Margaret for getting it done, for sticking with it in spite of that that setback when when you know we were last following her story. And to see her do that, it just it's cool. It's so cool because I know that she was supremely disappointed not getting the four that you know last year when she attempted it. And so to see her come back around and get it, it just makes it all the more sweet. So congrats to Mary Margaret for sticking with it. And I think that's the story of many who race this weekend and who will race this season. If you don't get it once, just keep working, keep plugging away. You will get it. All right. So with that, as a overly long intro, I want to jump into some questions that I got from you guys about prepping for races, race strategy, and then about post-marathon recovery. And so let's talk about those and kind of go in order of pre-race, during race, and then post-race for these questions. I've got five questions that I wanted to cover off on here. So this first question came from came from the UK. So shout out to our listeners in the United Kingdom. And this question came and it was just about pre-race nerves. This athlete was talking about just struggling with sleep and dealing with those pre-race nerves and getting a little bit wrapped around the axle, so to speak, before a race, which can affect performance. So what are my tips for dealing with pre-race nerves? Well, I've talked about this before, but we'll kind of cover off on a few things. One, I think it's recognizing that that it's okay at some level to have pre-race nerves, that that's a part of it. And if you have nerves, if you have some anxiety, then that's a sign that your goal is big enough, that you're doing something that's worthy. And so I don't, I don't think you ever want to aspire to not have nerves before a race. I think, in fact, you want to feel a little bit of nerves. And that's just a sign, again, that your, your goal is big enough. And so we're not trying to necessarily eliminate those nerves. What we're trying to do is channel them channel them into the race so that that nervous energy can be focused on getting your goal versus first drawing you away from your goal. And so how can we do that? I think there's a few different ways. And I think I've talked about this before on the podcast, but I like to think about two types of strategies when it comes with dealing with nerves. There's associative strategies and then there's dissociative strategies. The associative strategies are the ones that have you associate with your race, associate with that 
with those nerves in a way that's productive. And so for me, when I get worried before a big race, and again, I always have pre-race nerves as well, even still, then one strategy is associating, taking that nervous energy and channeling it into an activity that will help me prepare. And that could include a lot of different things. It could include going into a visualization exercise, as I talked about a few episodes ago. It could be could mean studying the course. Usually leading up to a big race, I'll like to set the course map as the background on my phone or on my computer so that in those moments when the nerves pop up, I can perhaps minimize the window I'm in and just study the course map so that I can be more effective in my visualization, but also so I can be more prepared for facing the race. It could mean going into planning mode and researching restaurants that you might want to eat at pre-race if you happen to be doing an out-of-town race. It could mean looking at your pace plan and fine-tuning that or putting it to memory. There's lots of different associative strategies, but they're all things that would help you prepare. And so I would encourage you when those nerves come to channel them into action that can help you be more prepared for your race. So that's one category, associative strategies. And the other category is dissociative strategies, which means what can I do to distract myself, to take my mind off of the race? And I think sometimes that can be what we need because we can't spend every waking moment preparing for the race. So sometimes we do need to take a step back and just not think about the race and have that be a way to calm our nerves. What does that look like? Well, it could be anything that takes your mind off things. It could mean going to watch a movie. It could mean digging into a Netflix marathon. It could mean maybe spending time with friends who aren't doing the race, who won't ask you about the race so that you can talk about something else. It could mean maybe reading a book that is, you know, a fiction book that that, that doesn't bring to mind race day thoughts. It can mean all of those things, you know, finding activities that calm you, that take your, your mind off of the task at hand. And I think oftentimes... Those associative strategies and those dissociative strategies can come need to come together in order to effectively deal with those pre-race nerves. So then, you know, what are some other things to think about there besides those two types of strategies? I think, you know, it's common to not sleep the night before a race. I think that is a completely normal thing and... I've had many good races with very little sleep the night before. And so oftentimes as coaches, we talk about the most important night's sleep being a couple of nights before your race. If you're racing Sunday, that Friday night and that Thursday night before those two nights, maybe when the race isn't as top of mind are probably the most critical. So getting sleep that week prior and then the night before, if you don't get that much sleep, it can be okay. Personally, I also like to do a glass of wine the night before a race, just one, but that serves a calming effect and I'll do white wine because sometimes red wine will give me headaches, but that'll give me just a little bit of alcohol that kind of serves as a calming effect that then doesn't affect my performance the next day. 
So that may be something else that you find useful. Some people I know also find it effective to, to supplement melatonin, a little bit of melatonin to help calm your nerves and bring sleep, you know, those, those nights before. And so those are a couple of other strategies that you might employ that would probably be considered in the dissociative camp of helping you take your mind off things. And, and that's where you just have to then play with it. So again, in summary, one, recognize those nerves are healthy because it means your goal is big enough. And then two, go to work on either associative strategies or dissociative strategies to help process and deal with those nerves in an effective way. And then, you know, when you show up on race day, go to work, focus on the task at hand, do the next thing you can in every single moment to then deliver on race day itself. So there you go. Pre-race nerves. That was one of the questions I got. Now let's talk a little bit about a couple of the during race questions that I got. The biggest one I alluded to at the top is the pacer question. No matter how, no matter how many times I talk about race strategy, no matter how many race strategies I give out, People always come back with the question, should I run with this pacer? And I will always come back with the answer, no, (laughs) no. Do not run with the pacer. That is a terrible idea. And I will continue to espouse it as a terrible idea for as long as I'm a coach. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you can't use pacers, and I'll talk about that. But why should you not use a pacer? There's a, there's a couple really important reasons. The first, I think, and probably the most important, is that I don't understand why you would trust a total stranger with a race that you've prepared for for five to six months. You don't know anything about this person, and I don't care how many times you talk to them about it or if you meet them at the pre-race expo, you don't know what their preparation looks like. You don't know how ready they are to pace. You don't know how good they are at actually dialing into a certain pace. You don't know if they're even going to be able to prepare to finish the marathon. As a racer myself and as a spectator, I've seen pacers in the wrong place, going too fast, dropping out of races, doing the wrong thing so many times because you can't trust these people. And that's not to say that all pacers are bad. I know a lot of amazing pacers. And, you know, if you're in a, the Austin Marathon and you are and you want to talk about pacers, there's a lot of amazing pacers out there. So I'm not criticizing pacers. I'm just criticizing this concept that you can follow a total stranger and trust them with your goal, not knowing how prepared they might be. So that's one reason. You don't know this person. Don't trust them with your goal. Secondly, typically pacers are instructed to run even split races. And for reasons that I discussed in episode 151, that is generally not an optimal marathon strategy. If you look at Kipchoge's world record, if you look at Bekele's time that was two seconds short of the world record, both were run in fairly significant for them 
negative splits, meaning the second half of the race was faster than the first because you burn more energy in mile run, running marathon pace, because you're not warmed up, you're not in tune with that rhythm, than you will in the middle of the race if you allow yourself a proper gradual warm-up. Again, talked about that in episode 151, but it is not optimal to run an even split marathon unless you're running a time, a target time that's significantly faster than you might be capable of in that given moment. And so if you go with those pacers that are going out right on pace, they're going out even splits. You're going to be burning too much energy early on and it's going to cost you later. So that's the second reason not to go with pacers. Now, how can you use pacers? Well, sometimes I will have people use pacers as a reference point early on in the race to help them start slow. And so they might use a slower pace group than their target pace as a reference point in starting at a certain pace that might be 30 seconds to a minute per mile slower than their target marathon pace. And using that pacer as a reference point can just help make sure that you don't go out too fast. Again, that should be done with caution because you don't know if that pacer themselves might be going out too fast. But sometimes that is an effective way to use a pacer. But then you're going to leave that person because then you're going to start to gradually pick it up and seek a a faster time per mile for your marathon. So again, so that's a temporary use perhaps as a reference point early in a race to get going. And then they could be potentially used as a carrot late in the race if you might be approaching that pacer milestone late in the race that you're trying to achieve. You can go chase them if you started patiently and then progress through the field. Maybe you can go use them as a carrot, go fishing for that pace group later. That could be an effective use of a pacer or a pace group. But even still, you have to be skeptical that even that group is necessarily on pace. So how you know, how do you know it's the right reference point? So just don't do it is the moral of the story. Don't ask about it. Don't think about it. Don't be tempted. I understand why you're tempted because this idea that you could just let someone else do all the work for you and set the, the pace so you don't have to think about it at all is tempting. And in the case of Kipchoge, who has 41 of the fastest and best pacers in the world, even still, they need a laser line on the concrete to tell them what pace to go in order to trust those pacers, some of the most elite runners in the world. So don't trust pacers. Don't be tempted. It's not worth it. You are prepared. You have done the work. Trust yourself. You should trust yourself more than you should a stranger to execute this race because you've trained for it, you've prepared for it, you've visualized it, you've thought about it. You've done all the work to be ready to run your plan. So why wouldn't you trust yourself? Why would you trust somebody you don't know instead? I don't get it personally. And I'm telling you, be your own pacer. Trust yourself. All right, so that's second question. And always one of my favorites because it comes no matter how often I say, don't use a pacer. And I'll say that until I am blue in the face. 
the next question I got about using a watch. And I think in the day of our super fancy Garmin's and the 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 illusion that the watch is telling us exactly how fast we're going makes it tempting also to trust your watch as the pacer. And that's also very dangerous for reasons that I'll talk about. But somebody was asking me about how they should use their watch in, in a race like Chicago where you might not have the GPS signal because of the buildings or in a race like Toronto where early on that, that can be true. So what do you need to do or think about here? The first thing you need to do is really know how to use your watch. And you know, Garmin is the most common thing, but you also have Suntos and other other you know watches that will keep track of pace, time, and distance. But you need to know how to use your watch. And at times I kind of wish we were back in the days of the old Timex Ironman where you didn't have GPS, you just had to split your watch at the at the mile markers to know how fast you were going. But I want you to really know how to use your watch, which means really knowing how to lap your watch and what that means. When you lap your watch, and that's for for those that use Garmin, that's the lower right-hand button. Lapping your watch will tell you what you've done in the last interval with GPS and without. And so the brilliance of lapping your watch is that you can create your own intervals and you actually don't even need the GPS function to measure how fast you're going because the course is measured and your watch has a timer on it. And between the two of those things, you can actually figure out how fast you're going without relying on GPS. And especially in situations like Chicago or Toronto where you have tall buildings and the GPS is unreliable, that becomes critically important. So you need to know how to lap your watch and what that means. You need to know how to turn off the auto lap on your watch because Garmin's are by default set up to lap every mile at least according to its own measured distance. But if that measured distance is inaccurate because the GPS signal is not properly connecting to your wrist because of the tall buildings, then that auto lap becomes useless. Even still, even if the GPS is correctly working, you may not be running the the course in its shortest form because you're taking a little bit longer around curves than running the tangents. And so you might actually find that your watch tells you you get to a mile before you get to the one mile marker on the course. And what matters, not what your watch says, but what the course says in terms of distance. So you need to learn how to turn off that auto lap or at least use it or not use it to your advantage. You also need to learn, if you can, how to turn off the GPS if you don't think it's going to be useful for you because of situations like Chicago where the buildings get in the way. All of these things are critically important. And if I were to advise you, and my most preferred method for using your GPS is actually not to rely on the GPS components at all, but rather on the actual measured course you have in front of you. So I would encourage you to turn off the auto lap because again it may lap automatically at a time that's not quite in sync with the mile markers turn off the auto lap and then manually lap your watch on garmin's using that lower right hand button once you see those mile markers and that will tell you how fast you got through 
the mile marker, which tells you how fast you went for that last mile, which tells you then how on sync or in sync with your plan with the plan you are or not. It also means if you're lapping at those mile markers that you're automatically accounting for any extra distance you may be running because you can't perfectly cover the tangents in a race. So if I had my way, you would just manually lap at each mile, use that as your checkpoint on pace, ignore the GPS, what the GPS is telling you in terms of pace otherwise, because it may or may not be reliable. And by the way, instant pace on these garments is always subject to some variation that may not be perfect. So manually lap your watch. That will tell you how fast you're going at each mile marker. And if you set up your screens on the Garmin so that you have one that shows maybe total time and total distance, and then your second screen, which focuses on your lap time and your lap distance, then you can toggle between those if you need to to, to figure out where you are on the course. But it will tell you that lap screen will tell you how fast you ran each mile if you're manually splitting at the mile marker because you know that between mile zero and mile one is a mile. And if you split your watch at that point, you'll know exactly how long it took you by stopwatch to cover that distance, which means that is your pace per mile on average for that mile. And then you keep doing it manually splitting at each of those miles and it will tell you for the last mile how fast you went on average for that mile so that you can dial into a rhythm into a pace without being subject to the whims of a gps connection that may or may not be effective so use that use that functionality practice that functionality if you need to because your watch isn't the end-all and be-all of distance and pace the courses and again as i said you have a measured course and you have a stopwatch on your wrist use those two things to figure out how fast you're going because you know you can count on that information you don't necessarily know you can count on the pace that your watch is telling you because of all the factors that i've mentioned and then if you get to any point and you find that you're too fast or too slow then adjust and don't necessarily try to make up that time, but just adjust for that next mile. Use that as data that you can then go into adjusting your pace to get the next mile right. For those of you, for the and for those of you that are going to be in Toronto, I found out that they will not have any mile markers marked on the course, but they will have each kilometer marked, and there's 42 of those markers, which means that you can actually get data even more frequently every 1k if you want and so that will require you to do some math to calculate k's per mile associated with your minutes per mile sorry minutes per k is you know to approximate that with what you know for minutes per mile but that's okay and that will actually give you more frequent data on how fast you're going or if you don't want that frequent of data then you could actually split your watch every 2k so maybe not at 1k and 2k and 3k but at 2k and 4k and figure out how fast you should be going in those 2k chunks that will equate to the minutes per mile you're trying to achieve and if you manually split at those kilometers then it's going to give you again data on how fast you're going that is going to be more reliable than what your gps says so 
use your watch in that way. And if you do that, it means turning off your auto lap at a minimum because you'll be relying on manual laps. And it also means potentially ignoring what the GPS says or turning off your GPS, which you can do and I've done, so that it isn't something that throws you off. So think about those things and practice whatever you're going to do, but decide how you're going to use your watch. And that would be my recommendation, but decide how you're going to use your watch and then effectively use that tool on race day because it's important. Just like you want to trust yourself and you need to be able to trust the data that you're getting from your watch and use it in a way that's going to be effective for you and not have you yo-yoing all over the place reacting in real time to real time pace which isn't going to be very accurate especially in a race with a bunch of tall buildings all right so that was the third question the next two questions came about post-race and i get a lot of these questions and people are often eager to turn the page and move on to the next thing my best advice first of all is let this race sink in first Hopefully for, they, for you that means celebrating and maybe doing some things that you haven't been able to do because of your focus on training over the last five to six months. But enjoy it if you had a good race first. And if you didn't have a good race, then it's okay to wallow in it. Some people talk about a 24-hour or 48-hour rule. I don't necessarily think that's enough always if you have a bad day. Sometimes I think it might take three or four days to wallow in your misery. But if you had a bad day, then wallow in it. Like I say, like I like to say, you have to grieve a bad race performance. Like you would grieve a loss of anything. Grieve, be sad, be mad, question everything. I think that's an important part of the healing process. And so definitely take your time to feel all the feels in those initial days afterwards and I don't think you can effectively turn the page later unless you let all of those emotions out so if you want to cry cry if you want to be mad be mad if you know and and one of the things that's hardest about that is that you'll often have people throwing encouragement at you saying oh it's it's okay oh you still did well oh all of those things and they mean well and I get it But, you know, you have to ignore them sometimes or just tell them to be quiet because you don't want to hear it. I know when you're in that mode of just really feeling all the feels associated with a bad day, but you have to do it so that you can turn the page later. So again, celebrate properly or feel all the feels. That's step one. Don't let yourself think, think ahead. I don't care if you had a perfect race. Don't think about the next marathon within a couple weeks. If you had a bad race, same thing. Don't think about the next marathon. Don't think about redemption. Try to be present. Feel what you need to feel, whether it be in celebration or in sadness now. And just don't let yourself think too far ahead. I think oftentimes we make reactionary decisions that may not be most productive when we haven't processed the emotions of the given day. So let yourself process those emotions and 
and then give yourself plenty of time, especially for a marathon, to recover properly. In my mind, it takes at least three weeks to get over a marathon physically and perhaps even a little bit longer for some of you mentally and let yourself take that time. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't necessarily, that you don't run, you know, it could mean that you, that you are active, but I try to avoid anything rigorous or too regimented for at least three weeks. You got to give your body the opportunity to recover and well beyond when that soreness is gone, you will still have damage in your muscles that will need repair. And so you're going to just, you're just going to want to take that time and let it happen. If you try to jump back into training too quickly, then you'll end up likely with an injury sooner rather than later as a result. So, but let's talk about it by week. What does that first week back look like? The first week back, you know, I think can really be super free form. I think you want to definitely get some movement going, but I don't think you necessarily have to run at all. I like to do some walks in those first couple of days afterwards. Again, as we've talked about many times, movement equals blood flow equals healing. And so some really light, easy movement, likely in the form of walking around, even if you're super sore, is going to help you. might require you to walk backwards down staircases and things like that. But getting getting moving just a little bit and in a very light and easy way those first few days is going to be helpful. I don't typically recommend anyone consider running before the Wednesday after a Sunday race, maybe the Tuesday after a Saturday race. That would be the absolute earliest I would even consider it. But really this first week to me, you can do whatever you want, whatever you feel like with that one caveat that I wouldn't run before Wednesday after a Sunday race. Do move around, do go for walks, do enjoy yourself, maybe see the city, but don't worry about running or running with any structure during that first week. I do find that moving around even that same day of the marathon has proven really helpful for me. I think it was after CIM last December where we walked to lunch and ended up being about a mile and then a mile back and it was super slow and easy but just that that simple walk actually helped me me feel even better the next day doesn't even have to be that far it could be you know quarter mile half a mile just get keep those legs moving as much as possible that same day and in the next few days keeping it at a walk at a walking level and then if you want to go for a short run three to four miles on that Wednesday or even Thursday, I think that's fine, but it should be glacially slow. May even want to start out as a walk and really, really build gradually with the pace as you get into that first run. You know, and then beyond that, my post marathon plan calls for potentially three total runs in that first week back where you might run three miles on Wednesday three miles super easy on Friday and then no more than five to six as a quote-unquote long run on the weekend in that first week but again I would consider that completely optional if you want to do absolutely nothing that first week then I would be okay with that as well 
again, you should just listen to your body, play by ear, play it by ear, do what you want to do, and don't force anything. And then in the second week, I recommend no more than three to four runs with three or two or three of those runs being three to four miles, super easy. Maybe one of those runs having some some strides at the end of it, gently executed strides so that you can you can start to flush out the muscles with a little bit of faster work within a long run in the six to eight mile range at the end of that second week. And then in the third week, you can build back to perhaps five, four to five runs where most of them are in the three to five range. And then you do perhaps an eight to 10 mile easy long run at the end of that third week with perhaps some very light quality in one of the one of the runs during that third week and I would consider that light by making it super effort based nothing that's gonna push you too hard maybe do a, a light fart lick during that week where you're just picking it up a little bit to try to get the legs moving because I do think sometimes that speed can help flush the flush the legs and and make it feel even better and then beyond that for week four and beyond I think you can you can build back then gradually towards your normal mileage thinking about using the roughly 10% rule of miles per week building back towards your normal mileage but I wouldn't start that rigorous build until really that fourth week and that's when you can then start to get back into more traditional quality work so again, take at least three weeks of pretty easy running, pretty light running, and don't worry yet about getting back to to rigorous training because your body's just not ready for it. Well, after that soreness goes away, your, your body's still repairing itself. And the other thing to remember here is that fitness, unfortunately for us, is not linear. And a lot of times you might come off a big result in a marathon and then hope to then just linearly grow that fitness from there and it just doesn't work that way your body naturally exhales after a big race you will lose fitness for a little bit and that's an important part of the process you have to detrain in order to retrain to a higher place and that can be really frustrating because you know in in two or three weeks time you might try some light quality and you'll feel slow all of a sudden and and you'll want to try to force it and or you'll try to want to force it and be back to where you were right before the race. And that just isn't going to happen. You're not going to have that same form. So you have to let that detraining happen. And then you have to then go back into training and rebuild the fitness from the foundational level. And you will rebuild to a higher place in that next cycle. But you're not going to start at a higher place after getting a big result. You have to detrain in order to retrain and just be patient with that part of the process because otherwise you'll force things and then potentially end up injured. So that's something to keep in mind as well. Detrain to retrain. And it is a normal and healthy part of the process. All right, then the last question that I've gotten from a few people is what do you do if you have a bad day and I've talked about this a little bit already and as I said you know the first step is just grieve mourn just 
be sad about it, feel all the feels. And, you know, I don't like to necessarily time bound that with 24 or 48 hours. You know, I think it could take three to four days. If it takes more than a week, then you may have gone too far with it. But you want to feel all the feels, and I think you want to take the time needed to really grieve or mourn the loss of that goal. And then, you know, and then step two, once you've felt those things, is then to get into a more rational place and start to digest potentially what went wrong in training or what went wrong on race day. And I think one thing you have to be careful when looking at for the lessons in a bad race is that, you know, you could have had a bad day simply because for unexplained reasons. And so I don't necessarily think we can always explain away every single thing. We can't necessarily always point to the one thing that went wrong or if I had only done this and I would have had the result I wanted. Sometimes you just have bad days and that's okay. And so resist the temptation to come to perfect reasons or perfect rationale as to why the day went bad but but openly and honestly ask yourself hey what could I have done better whether or not all of those things done better would have led to a perfect result we can't know but at least digest your lessons you know what could you have done better in training maybe you could have been more consistent maybe you could have incorporated a little bit more pace work into some of your long runs maybe you didn't execute right. You went out too fast maybe on race day. Maybe you messed up your nutrition strategy. You know, there's a lot of things that could have gone wrong, but just pick out those lessons and objectively as possible, ideally with your coach or maybe with a training partner who can talk to you about it objectively. Just digest those things. Note those lessons for the future. But again, I wouldn't make that the end-all and be-all. I don't think you're necessarily going to explain everything away. And then sometimes... There are just races that you can't explain. You know, I think one of my best marathons ever, maybe my best marathon ever, I ran a 247. And and I wanted to explain, and I felt like I was in shape to run a 242, 243, and I didn't. And I wanted to explain why that didn't happen, why I ran four or five minutes slower than that. And the reason was actually quite simple. It ended up being 75 degrees at the during the race. It was just hot, and I didn't. And I want to be, and yet I wanted to beat myself up and and somehow explain it being my fault that I didn't get that goal or something was wrong with the training or whatever it may be. And at the end of the day, nothing was wrong with the training. Nothing was wrong with how I executed that race. It just simply got hot, and that wasn't in my control. And yeah, there were some small lessons that I could take from that cycle, but the main lesson I actually take now from it having having been separated from several years from it is that that may have been the best race I've ever run, especially given the conditions, even though the time wasn't my fastest. If you adjust it for the heat on that day, then it might actually be my best race ever. And I had an amazing training cycle and really the lessons I should have been taking from that race rather than beating myself up were, you know, all the things that I did do and that I did correctly in order to be in the fitness that I that I was in so I could replicate those things again and not necessarily change anything at all. And so anyway, so it's just important when you're going through that process not to to put too much weight on the lessons because, yes, yeah, sometimes there are some things out of your control that might affect you on race day. 
And then you want to take those things and then channel it into your next cycle. I would resist the temptation to go seek redemption right away. There are some people that want to turn around six weeks later or two months later and go try to get it, get it again. And for me as a coach, my answer is never to do that because again, you have to detrain first and then retrain to a higher place. So it's, it's, it's really difficult to hang on to fitness. So I would not turn around and go try to race again within a couple of months or even, you know, within a shorter period than that, because it's usually doesn't end well because it's hard when you've been peaking for one period to hold that fitness for a, for a period that's a little bit further out. And so what I would encourage you to do is just let that detraining happen, go back into base mode and then rebuild the layers again. As I mentioned about Keith and Nicole, both were super patient, both allowed that process to play out without getting greedy. Nicole and Keith also at different windows worked on weaknesses, worked on different race distances so that they could build to a higher place and didn't just jump right back into the marathon because all of that's important, working all the different parts of your aerobic fitness so that you can run fast over all distances is as important to getting that marathon time as anything else. And if you do it that way, if you're patient and then you rebuild the building blocks in training properly with patience without just jumping right back to the marathon, then what you can find is just like Keith and Nicole found, 31-minute PR, 51-minute PR. When you actually go back to the marathon, you'll do it that much better and you'll make bigger a bigger leap versus if you just go right back to it, then you might make a smaller incremental leap that will actually stunt that potential long-term development. So those are some of the things to think about if you have a bad race. But Really, at the end of the day, whether you have a good race or a bad race, if you love the journey, then what are you going to do? You're going to go back to work and you're going to keep trying to build to a higher plane. And that's what you should do after a bad race. That's what you should do after a good good race. Process, celebrate or mourn, recover, and then build the pieces back together in the right order and get back to work. Because if you get back to work, then when you go back and try to get the, a goal the next time, you're going to be doing it from an even higher place, just like Mary Margaret. You know, her goal was sub four. She ran a 350 because when she went into this next marathon training cycle, she did it from a higher place because all that work she'd done before that caused that, that she did before missing four came with her and then all the work she did from missing four till now till this race at prairie fire was with her as well and so she was able to go to a higher place because she just kept doing the work and so that's what i would encourage you to do if you just keep working then the goals you achieve the next time will blow your mind and then you'll be thinking about things much bigger than perhaps the one that you just missed so keep that in mind when you get back to work all right with that we'll wrap it there good luck again to all those racing in the fall including to those that are heading to toronto with us this coming weekend 
Thanks, as always, for listening. You can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.